welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Hello and welcome to Nelda Live. My guest today is Austin Cleon. Austin, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is so good to have you. I just want to jump right in. We're going to talk about your book. I'm going to see if I'm holding it in the right place in the camera. Uh, keep going. 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. You said that um, life is short, art is long. Can you tell us about the journey of writing this book? Because you said it was something you wrote because you needed to read it. Well, it's strange because when I pick it up now, I'm like, I did write this before the pandemic. I, I know I did. <laughs> so I, you know, so true. It, it really started for me um, about really about three years ago. I was sort of, there were two things going on in my life. One, you know, the, the kind of climate of the country changed. Um, it, it felt like every day I'd wake up and and the social media had kind of gotten dumber and meaner overnight, and I and I so I was very distracted, like a lot of my uh, a lot of my artistic friends, because you know when you're an artist, you know you tend to be sensitive, right? You take things in a lot, and so I was very distracted by the kind of climate of the country and what was going on. And then the second thing that happened was I had pretty much been you know I've been writing books and publishing for about 10 years. And I just didn't know if I could do it anymore. You know, I just, mm. uh, every, yeah. you know, every creative person struggles with that. Can I do it again? And so I was kind of exploring those, those two things that were happening at the same time. And, and, and it occurred to me that that question, how do you keep going? That, that, that's true whether, you know, you're starting out or starting over or, or you know, at the end of your journey, really. So uh, I wanted to explore that uh, question. And this was really a book I wrote for myself. Um, it, it was the first one that I'd done that with because my other books had been written for either me in the past or for other people. But this was one that I really felt like I needed to read. Well, it's, it's an amazing book. Um, you say in, that you, in here that you feel uh, less like Luke Skywalker and more like Phil Connor from the movie The Ground, Groundhog Day. So can you tell the audience what you mean by that? I don't know if we need to tell them about Groundhog. Surely everyone's seen that movie. Well, I, no spoilers, I suppose. But um, <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's, it's 25 years old now. Uh, so it's sort of this modern parable. So Groundhog Day is a story of Bill Murray plays a weatherman who wakes up on the same day, Groundhog Day, in a small town in Pennsylvania. And he has to figure out how he's going to live his life uh, repeating this day over and over. Um, you know, I think a lot of people sort of think of, uh, I, I feel like a lot of creative people, they think, oh, what's it like to be creative? It's like Don Draper, you know, like you're oh, the, yeah. great, the great genius, man. You know, he just goes on a journey and meditates for a little bit and that big idea pops up, you know, the light bulb. And for me, Groundhog Day really encapsulates exactly how I feel as a creative person because I literally come in here to my studio and I look at a blank page and I think to myself, didn't I just do this yesterday? <laughs> I swear I just did this yesterday. I had a decent idea yesterday. Am I going to be able to do it again? And, um, and that happens over and over in creative careers because no matter what point you are at in your career, that question, what's next? What are you going to do next you know a creative person is someone who has to answer that and it's not just creative people right it's like entrepreneurs and business people and people of all stripes that question what's next hovers over you oh yeah <laughs> you know no matter what you're doing and so uh for me what helps me is to think of myself as phil connors i'm i'm i i have a routine i i'm faced with the same problems every day and i have routine and structures and ways of getting through it in ways of kind of perking my life up so to speak, you know, to get those ideas. You know, recently I interviewed filmmaker David Lynch and he follows the idea of living the art life, of aligning one's life um, to create and produce art in whatever medium, you know, you choose. I'm assuming you can relate to that. Sure. <laughs> I mean, 
Lynch is a really interesting character to me. I mean, he always has been. Um, the thing that I love about, I mean, I don't want to just make this about David's work, but um, I've always loved that image of him and the big boy. Did he talk about big boy at all? He probably doesn't go anymore. Yeah, he didn't go to big boy. Man. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. there's a great, when he was doing Twin Peaks and some of those shows, he talked about going to the big boy restaurant every afternoon and having like a milkshake and a cup of coffee. And that's where he would get his ideas. And, um, you know, the caffeine abuse set to the side. I think there's something about going to the same place every day and seeing what happens. That to me has been the most powerful idea is that if you make a space in your life and you go a, a time in a space and you go there every day and you sort of sit there and, and, and you wait and you work, things happen. It's that idea of making uh, time and space and bringing your materials there and seeing what happens. Right. I think today he does quinoa. Oh, okay. That makes, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> He's <No>. progressed. Yes. <laughs> you know, you moved to LA and eh. <laughs> pretty soon you're eating quinoa. That's right. You know. <laughs> so can you, I mean, cause I know we're talking about his routine, very focused and that, and he did believe that routine. I mean, he does believe still that routine um, is, it you know, keeps him focused on everything. Can you, can you walk us through uh, I know routine's important to you. So can you walk us through your life a day? Well, you know, life is weird right now uh, during, uh, to say the least. Um, but uh, luckily, I sort of had a routine. My boys really only went to school for about a year. They're, they're five and seven. So they, so, you know, so we had them at home for like half a decade. And I had this routine worked out with my wife where we kind of, you know, I worked in the morning and, and she took over and, and then we kind of switched up and stuff. But now, of course, we're back to those preschool days where they're at home all day. But for me personally, I'm a morning person. So I have to protect my mornings at all costs. So the most important thing for me in the morning is to not look at my phone and not know what's going on in the world. I don't, I, I can't know what's going on in the world. Um, I get up, I make her breakfast, uh, flip the TV on for the kids and uh, eat breakfast. We go for a walk every day, which I think is another like super important thing for me is to get outside, see the world with your own senses and uh, we go for a little walk around our neighborhood every day for about an hour we push the kids in the stroller still they're getting too big but um it's the mental health thing um <laughs> and then i come back here to the office and then i work until lunch and that's the really rich um that's just the really rich raw creative time and um i by lunchtime, you know, I, or, uh, you know, depending on how much work I get done, that's when I let the world in, you know, check email <laughs> and, and that kind of thing. I've always loved John Waters says he makes stuff up in the morning and he sells it in the afternoon. <laughs> and so that's, that's what I love is, is to kind of like do the really raw creative work in the morning and then have lunch. And then the afternoons for administrative stuff, or it's for fun stuff like this, like zoom calls and, 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 and things like that. And that's pretty much it. Uh, I get in the pool with the kids at a certain point and then I come back. So I, so after lunch, I give my wife a couple hours off. I say, get out of here. I take the kids, we hop in the pool and then I come back and do that admin work I talked about. And then I knock off at five o'clock like a banker, you know, I'm, I'm done for the day. And so the rest of the day is just uh, having dinner, hanging out with the kids, watching TV, drinking a whiskey. There we go. Reading, you know, <laughs> So that's pretty much every day. And that was every day before the pandemic. So I, I feel lucky in a lot of ways and that my life hasn't been impacted in quite the way that other people have. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, my job is to sit around in my office trying to make stuff up. <laughs> you know, you don't necessarily have to go anywhere for that. Oh, and hopefully you have, you know, more readers now too, you know, which is, which is good as well for an author. But uh, I like your slogan, keep your tools tidy and your materials messy. So what do you mean by that? So um, 
I think so. I'm really inspired by like uh, the chef's idea. I, you know, I'm uh, I'm a Texan, so we're allowed to mispronounce things. But uh, the mise en place, the the idea of having uh, all your tools in the right spot, like chefs talk about that a lot. Anthony Bourdain writes about that in Kitchen Confidential. The idea that your workspace sort of becomes this uh, extension of your body, kind of. So I like having all my tools in one space. But my materials, I keep messy. So that's like scraps of paper and debris and books and just the clutter of life I let accumulate around me. And the reason I do that is because all these interesting combinations happen. Like even on a bookshelf, you know, two books will be next to each other that you don't necessarily, you know, wouldn't necessarily think of. And it gives you an idea or you see two scraps from the newspaper laying on the floor and it gives you an idea, you know. So I'm very much about having structure and order when it comes to the tools and then chaos with the materials and letting the materials kind of tell me what they want to be, so to speak. So this balance, I feel like, between order and chaos is something that all artists are trying to, they try to attempt. And I feel like in the past couple of years, there's been this real emphasis on tidiness. Uh, and, I, and I find this to be very constrictive and not at all helpful for me personally because there's something about finding things in the mess um, that, that is really helpful. I make these trash collages that are on my Instagram, if you look, and, and it's just junk that's been on my desk from other projects. And I create these collages, and half the time the, the trash collage is more interesting than the thing I was working on. So, you know, yeah. as a creative person, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I'm always interested in um, deleted scenes and movies and, and this idea of, like, taking the debris from one project and turning it into another project. I'm a, very, I'm a recycler. Like I, I like, you know, I like taking junk from one place and putting it in another place. Yeah, it's interesting. I do encaustic art. And so in my studio, all I have to go do is plug in the wax. And I have two different places where I plug in wax. And, um, and I'm immediately, my mind starts being stimulated because of the smell. Yes. There's an odor to beeswax yes. in the tree wet resin. Yeah. And so it, it just it ignites, right? But you're talking about paper. I, I have papers from, it's from Texas Art Supply in Houston. I haven't found another source for them like these, but I, I collected lots and lots of handmade papers. And so they fascinate me. I love to, I keep every scrap of them because That's, I use them. Yes. Yeah. The texture and uh, the colors and just the fact that someone made it in a way too, you know, it has its house. I don't know. It's, it's beautiful. I'm 100% with you. And even paper has a smell, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, when I was younger and I was working, I think this is really what I was missing because, you know, I was being a writer, clackety, clackety, clack on the keyboard. And there's no sensory, it's such a lack of sensory input, you know? Yeah. Even when you're, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of feedback to writing by hand even. Um, but that's, that said, it's, it's such a it's such a back and forth with me because a lot of times I'll start analog, um, I'll I'll start with sort of analog tools like I'll be writing by hand and then I'll switch over to digital when I sort of have the idea and I just need to like kind of pound it out. And my friend Clive Thompson has actually did some research where he found papers where that was exactly what these these scientists had figured out, um, which is like. If you want to generate ideas, a lot of times pencil and paper let, leads to better things. But if you want to communicate ideas, if you want to take your ideas and put them into the world, then that's when you type. Uh, I find it really interesting, this idea uh, yeah. that you might be – I'm very into appropriate technologies. Like I'm not a Luddite and I'm not a, 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 a kind of proto-techno person. I'm, I'm very much about what is the appropriate technology for the job. And I think that every, again, every creative person has to figure this out. But the, <laughs> the tools you use are technology, right? They're just, they're just a certain oh, yeah. type of technology. And that's exactly. what I'm always trying to get to people. I'm always, I'm always trying to like tell people like, 
a pencil is a technology. Like this is a, this is a piece of technology. And if you start thinking that way, if you start thinking about pencil and paper as a technology and then like a laptop as a piece of technology, that really, I think it helps because, because it, because it, then you can pick what's the appropriate technology and then you don't have to feel yeah. like an old, you know, you don't have to feel out of touch or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that because encaustic is one of the oldest known forms of art because it's in the sarcophagus of, of Egypt and it's how they, technology wise, if you will, it's how they preserved who that person was that was in that casket, right? You know, and beeswax doesn't die. I mean, it's still there, still preserved. Fascinating. Whereas a hard drive will deteriorate in, yeah. in 20 years, right? Good point. So these yeah. idea, this idea about what lasts, I think, is very, it's very strange in the culture now because you'll, you'll have all these art preservation projects where it's like, well, we're going to digitize this art and make sure to preserve it and stuff. And it's like, well, actually, this art's been around for <laughs> 500 years it's doing all right <laughs> like actually you know who's going to keep the servers alive and all this stuff 500 years so that's yeah, such a good point it's weird but i to me like my whole career has been on the edge of, of you know doing this analog work but also having this digital platform and and it's just all a big a, a big stew really yeah yeah but appropriate technology is the thing oh, yeah so yeah interesting oh yeah i mean i follow you on instagram so instagram is an interesting technology it's interesting to what you can get across to the people that are you know interested in what you're doing and 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 give them a little snapshot into your day and that kind of thing so that's always very very interesting i want to go back to your family if i can because creative people need huge amounts of time um so having the family around how do you see that how it affects your work this is a great question um it has been really surprising to me um, because particularly for men, I think, you know, there's that, there's that horrible uh, Cyril Connolly line where he says the enemy of creativity is the pram in the hall, the stroller. So, you know, there, if, you're, if you're a man in particular, you've got this whole kind of macho, anti-domestic history to contend with. Um, what's interesting to me is that there's this whole kind of, there's this whole beautiful literature of women artists who are mothers who write about art in a way that has been way more, um, I'm getting off topic, but I found that reading mothers and their experience of making art and being a parent to be way more illuminating than reading about dads. I mean, Michael Chabon has a, has a couple of neat collections, but he's got this great line where he's like, the bar is so historically low for fathers. It's very easy to, to leap over it. Wow. But, okay. But I've always been more interested in um, like people like Sally Mann, who, uh, you know, she actually uses her kids in her art. And um, there's a playwright named Sarah Rule who wrote this wonderful book about theater and motherhood. But anyway, so I come at it from, uh, from I wanted my kids to, uh, there's this idea that you need to keep family separate and the work separate. And I went in it in this other way and that I wanted there to be like kind of this total stew of what was going on in the house. So I wanted to bring my boys in the studio as soon as I could. Cause I also had this idea that and i think this is a very like fatherly thing like i think a lot of dads are like i'm going to teach him how to ride a bike and i'm going to teach him how to hit a baseball and i'm going to teach him this and that and this and i kind of came at it from the other way i thought you know i'm going to do the things i love in front of them and then i figure they'll either want to do those things too or they'll teach me what it is that they actually want to do and that has been the case they have taught me way 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 more than i could ever have possibly taught them um and i think what they've taught me about art in particular i don't think you can teach it i think you can set the stage for it which is something that john baldessari said i think that you you know you can you can provide materials and influence and you they can watch you but at the end of the day i think you make a space for learning to happen and so that has been 
So in the course of making space for my kids to do their own art and to do their own learning, they've taught me how to give myself the own, my own space. And um, I think it's been really liberating being a, being a parent because it's given me this second chance to really ask myself what I'm truly interested in, what my natural talents actually are, and to put all my energy into that into who, you know, I really yeah. feel like I am because yeah. that's what I'm trying to help the kids do. And so I feel a lot less uptight now. Now that might just be changing diapers and, and just, you know, the, the, the humility that comes from a parent, right. um, you know, from being pooped on and <laughs> literally, <laughs> and, and, you know, but, um, but for me, it's just been completely liberating. And it's also, I think that four-year-olds are the perfect artists. I think that Four-year-olds have no filter. They don't worry right. about making art. They don't worry about what's good. They just make stuff. And they also don't have names for things yet. So their sensory experience of the world is completely hallucinogenic and, and almost um, and kaleidoscopic. You know, they're, and, yeah. they're, and they're naturally curious. One of the interesting things is I used to, um, one of my, I always call my life as a portfolio. I uh, taught uh, elementary art from kindergarten through fifth grade for eight years. Absolutely adored it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Um, And I used to always say, people would say, you know, where do you see the breaks in kids' creativity? And I always said, after second grade. After second grade, they compare everything to each other. And, and there's this creativity force that's there before. But from second grade back, you know, there's this creative force. And uh, so they're fascinating. Kids are fascinating um, in that they don't really have that much of a comparison. Third grade, I start, I used to start seeing it, you know. And it just it used to just break my heart, you know. I know. Uh, so yeah, I have a seven-year-old. <laughs> so he's he would have been second year, second grade this year. Yeah, and I can see it already. I can, I can, I can see it, and I'm like, well, maybe this year will be a gift in a way. Yeah. Maybe, maybe oh, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll put this off one more year. This yeah, grade, we are going happens. to too. Yeah, I have eleven and twelve. I mean, our team and I, we all those of us who are parents, we all we always talk about. I'm doing this second time around, so I have I have adult kids and then I have another set. But the thing is, is that we we do. I look at it very differently. Um, I home educated my first two, so cool. yeah. So I was kind of, you know, we were doing that back then, um, back whenever I wore you know denim jumpers or something. But anyway, but the. <laughs> But the thing is, is that, you know, um, I did it for the same reasons that a lot of what you're talking about, because I just wanted a more natural flow to life. And I wanted them to know what I did and, and, and you know, to see those things. And so um, that is so cool. They also, don't you think they kind of bring, having your kids around brings that playfulness that adults forget? Absolutely. Just that, I, I mean, the play is so i mean that's what artists do i mean it's the work of the child and it's the work of the artist is to play um and i just i I also like having a gang i've always wanted like studio mates like i've always wanted i like to have people around i mean i'm i'm fairly extroverted but i do like to have other bodies in 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 my space kind of and to get like use their energy and my kids are at the age actually where i will steal ideas from them they come up with like wonderful phrases so owen mispronounces coronavirus coronavirus see i say it so owen mispronounces coronavirus as chronovirus chrono Uh and he kept calling it chronovirus and i thought well that's a much better name for it because it's a virus that destroys our sense of time chrono as in time so i started making these little um i've been making these uh, coronavirus collages out of watch faces from magazines but that's just like and then my other son Jules um, wants to be an author, and uh-huh. so he decided I that he doesn't have to take a bath because he's an important author, and there authors don't take baths; they sleep dirty. <laughs> and I thought, sleep dirty. That's so. I made a zine called Sleep Dirty. Sleep so dirty. I have a zine series called Slurp. So, like, it's not only about trying to like have. They are they are feeding me stuff all day. They're like little like. They're, they're like little talent scouts or so. I don't know. That's so great. 
It's just a constant <laughs> do of stuff. But you know, the home educating stuff is really interesting to me because I would say a huge, um, a huge influence on my own practice has been um, coming into contact with unschooling, the idea of unschooling. Uh-huh. And reading the work of John Holt in particular, I was raised by public educators and I was a, I was valedictorian of my high school. So I'm like a super overachieving school person. So when I, but then when I got out of college, I realized the thing I wanted to do is very, um, you're not going to le- learn it in school. So like I had to really find, I did all my interesting work outside of school. Like I had to uh-huh. really kind of, set a lot of my school aside. And so when I, I was, you know, the propaganda when I was growing up is that homeschoolers are crazy. They're weirdos. And that's just, that's, you know, that was the propaganda I grew up with. Now are some holding schoolers insane? Yes. Everyone's, <laughs> there's, you know, yes, a lot you can of people are insane. Yes. But there's this unschooling in particular, this idea that children are natural learners, that they don't need to be, that they're kind of off to the races. And this idea that you can school at home, I think what it did for me, even though we send our kids to school now, or did, <laughs> um, to me, it just, it, it, it was more about let's create an atmosphere at home in which learning is not is is totally natural so let's let's make the the home let's make the home like a studio well let's switch gears and talk about uh being the verb and not the noun yes walk us through that Uh, so uh, every (laughs) lots of people want to be writers right i want to be a writer or a novelist not that many people want to sit down and write (laughs) You know, uh, I want to be an artist, but that whole sitting in my studio eight hours a day, uh, that seems a little rough, right? So, I mean, you, you know, the way to become the noun is to do the verb. If you want to be a writer, you have to write. If you want to be a painter, you have to paint. You would think this is very basic, but it's not. <laughs> it seems to be everyone's great stumbling block. The other, so I always tell people, you know, why don't you just forget that noun altogether? Don't worry about being an artist. Don't worry about being a writer. Just worry about writing. Worry about making art. Because the thing I found is that, you know, when I started out, I wanted to be like a fiction writer. I wanted to be like a novelist. But um, I found out over time that's not my natural ability. I don't think in terms of character and plot. I think in terms of images and ideas. So, so I realized that if I had stuck with that vision, I have to be a novelist. I have to be a novelist. I wouldn't be doing the kind of things I am doing right now. Or if I said, well, I'm just a writer – I wouldn't be doing the visual art that I was doing right now, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like job titles and in particular and nouns can really restrict us um, in a lot of bad ways. I think they make you like really uptight. And so I think that if there is a noun that you're going for, you have to figure out how to turn it into a verb so you can get there. Yeah. So that is my own personal, that's what's always worked for me. I mean, for some people, it seems to be helpful to call themselves artists before they make art. Like, I'm a writer. Here's my, you know, here's my type, here's my typewriter, here's my stuff. And like, I'm a writer. Here's my notebook. Here we go. But for me, it's always been, um, for me, I've just been like, what is it that I really like to do? What are the verbs that I like to do? And there's a guy in town, um, a friend of mine named Stephen Tomlinson. And he gave this wonderful talk years ago that inspired me so greatly. He's, he was like, look, if you're someone who likes to do a couple of things, if you have three passions, if you try to cut one of them out of your life, you will feel phantom limb pain. It will nag at you forever. So if you have three passions, say, you got to figure out a way to keep those passions in your life somehow, even if that's only like an hour a week and you keep them in your life and pretty soon after a while they talk to each other and what comes forth might not be a career but it'll be a life Uh and that has inspired me that i just i remember him being on stage and saying that and i still to this day it's like you i think so many people feel phantom limb pain because they had that thing in their life, 
right? They had that thing that they just loved that fed them. And they were like, oh, but I'm a, you know, I'm a mom now. I don't have time. I can't, you know, no. Or, you know, oh, I'm real busy at work. And that phantom limb pain, it stays there. And you feel it all the time. And the way to not feel it is to bring the thing back, even for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think it's really important. It's funny. People will, I don't like it when people are like, like around the room. So what do you do? What's your, you know, who are you and what do you do? And I, because I do think life is a portfolio that, that, you know, if I were to tell you, know, when people ask me, what do you do? <laughs> I'm like, well, um, I'm a Broadway producer. I didn't mean to be one. <laughs> yeah. I saw something was brought to me and I was like, oh, wow, that's got to get out there. So I became a producer. I, you know, and so then same thing with the the documentary films and things I'm involved with. I mean, bring, someone brought something was like, wow, that that needs to be out there. Right. And so but I'm a teacher and I'm a, a mom and, uh, it, you know, I I oh my gosh, help other organizations start up and I work with nonprofits and I do, I run a company and right now I'm starting up a media company. And it's like, I don't know what my title is. I really don't. I really don't have one, you know? And so uh, when people ask me that question, I always stumble over it because, uh, in fact, sometimes I'll say, what do you do? And I'll look at them and I go, I don't know. Today? Today. I'm a mind reader. No, I just use that one. Yeah, like, uh, I, you know, for me, yeah, it's really weird, and and um, and then I, I'm always, uh, you know, I tell people I'm like I'm, I'm shelved in the self help section in a lot of bookstores. Wow. If you had told 19 year old me that I'd be in the, I'd be a self help writer. I would have vomited, you know, because like 19 year old me would have been like, oh, you know, but then because I, you know, because I stayed flexible over time, I found out, well, in publishing, there's this weird niche called a gift book. And it's a thing where you can make a very illustrated like you can make illustrated books that are sold by the cash register. Like that's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah. And so I didn't know that existed until my book, Steal Like an Artist, came out. And when that book came out, I was like, oh, there's a whole genre of this. So the books after Steal Like an Artist have been me playing with this form, this weird role that I stepped into, right? Yeah. Because that happens a lot where you're all of a sudden you're in this weird, you're like, wait, I do this now? But if you stay flexible and you're like, well, what what are my big things I love to do? It's like, well, I love to write. I love to draw and make images. And I love to put those things together. And then you're like, well, where's the outlet that I can do that? And it just happened to be these weird little books. And so then the game becomes like, what can you do with this forum that some people are like, ugh, you know, that kind of they roll their eyes. How good can you make this? Right? Because right. it would be like, uh, oh, I don't like romantic comedies or something. And you're like, oh, you don't like Bring Up Baby or Groundhog Day or, you know, like there are these <laughs> things that yeah, and yeah. genre. So I'm, that's something I'm really interested in as an artist too. And I, I think particularly for younger artists, how the heck are they even going to know what the form's going to be right now? Because who, who like with music, for example, what, how are people going to take music in, in, in 10 years, even who knows? I mean, 10 years ago, you know, so it's like, it's like things are always changing. So I really think if you get back to that, what do you like to do? You know, what, what are the verbs? And you stick with your verbs and then you figure out a place where you can do those verbs to bring forth things. You also said something about brand, not staying on brand. Mm. Oh. Yes. So, you know, we're, we're encouraged now to be brands, like to the personal brand, Austin Cleon, you know. Um, but if you're a – I worked in advertising for a while, and brands have brand guidelines, and they're very strict. Like I used to get the brand guidelines as a copywriter, and I was like, we have to say this and you have to use this point font with 
this color and you can't go out of the, you know, there were like these very, they weren't even constraints. They were like, they, they were, I, I mean, I guess they were constraints. They, they, there was room for creativity there, but it was very defined what this thing was that they were doing. And that to me is the opposite. There was a certainty that came with it. We are certain this is who we are and this is what we do. Um, to me, that is the complete opposite feeling of everything decent that I've ever made because everything decent I've ever made as an artist has started from this place of, I have no idea what I'm doing. Just scribbling yeah. like one of my kids, <laughs> right? I don't know what this is going to be. Oh, starting to look like a snowman. You know, you know, like it's, it's, it's there. Art starts from a place of uncertainty. And I think that when you have a brand, you, you start to harden and you start to solidify and you start to calcify. And Milton Glaser, the designer who just died um, recently, I mean, he had a good run. He was in his nineties, but it's still like a giant, you know, he had this long career and he put it this way. He said, and this is kind of controversial. He said the, um, I hope I don't mess it up. He says the path to personal growth is antithetical to professional success. So he's like, when you become a professional success, that requires you doing something that people grasp. Like we get it. Um, and then in order to keep having success or, or for people to buy things from you, it's like a lot of times in the creative field, give us more of that. Give us more of that thing that was a success right but as a creative person or as a in your personal life you're trying to grow you're wow. trying to evolve into the next thing this is the easiest way to look at this is in in music you know because there's always the album that breaks that the band loves i always feel like the band radiohead's a great example you know they start with guitars and they do this music and they they gain this audience and then they do this really weird album and then they do this super weird album with no guitars and freak everyone out, <laughs> you know, and, but they, but they did have a kind of, there is a sort of, there's a way of navigating that world where you're moving in between um, satisfying like the audience's expectations, but also where you want to take the audience. And so it's a yeah. really interesting dance. And I don't know that you can do it. I'm not sure the gray artists did it with, intention uh or not but the great careers kind of have this flow to them where it's that dance right in between yeah. lynch is a great example oh yeah don't get pigeonholed anywhere yeah yeah, it, yeah. you know that's true it really so is true. like this dance of yeah uh, of what you want to do and what people want from you. And, and, you know, so I think, you know, a lot of times in my personal practice that comes down to, there's a difference between making and sharing. So I make lots of weird stuff that doesn't go into the books, for example. Right. Right. But that's what like a blog and Instagram is great for. Right. Cause I can make this weird stuff that people are like, what is this? Oh, you know, like more book stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, I still have an outlet for it, you know? Um, oh. And so it's like, uh, you, you, you got to let your, your, you have to make the stuff that's going to come, but that just doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you have to share it. Right. Or uh, right. you have to publish it. So that's oh, yeah. If it's like, well, where can I put this weird stuff? Well, yeah. That's blog material. Right. That's, that's an Instagram post, you know, whereas this is a book chapter over here. Right. So let's, let's move to someone else that it just so happens that uh, you and I and my team are big fans of Joseph Campbell. And oh, yeah. I, yeah, I just interviewed Bob Walter, who uh, Bob is, was friends with Joseph. Lot, I mean, did a lot of stuff of his, in his life, a long time together as friends. And he still runs the foundation, uh, Joseph Campbell Foundation. And so I interviewed him, and I loved seeing your Bliss chapter, uh, Bliss Station chapter in your book. Yeah, because for people who aren't familiar, I'm just going to read this quote because it's so interesting that I saw it in your book. I was like, ah, one of my favorite quotes from Joseph Campbell. So I'm going to read it. So Austin, here's what Joseph Campbell said. You must have a room or a certain hour or so a day where you don't know what is in the newspapers that morning. 
You don't know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe anybody. You don't know what anybody owes you. This is a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and what you might be. This is the place of creative incubation. At first, you may find that nothing happens there. But if you have a sacred place and use it, something eventually will happen. You call it the place where you would disconnect from the world and connect to yourself. So um, I see we're there right now, right? Are we not in your space? We are. We're we, here. So we're in your bliss station. <laughs> what is so important to you about that separate space then? Well, I think, first of all, we carry these little black boxes around all day that keep you tethered, right? That you can be in touch all the time. Um, but the thing about the phone is it takes away so many of the conditions that traditionally have led to art, like boredom, isolation. Yes. Uh, you know, these states in which we're in touch with something other than what's in the, in the news, like, like Campbell says. Um, for me, it's about being able to hear myself. Uh, and because I don't know what I'm thinking unless it's coming through the pen half the time. I can't hear myself think half the time in the world um, unless I make a time to listen to it if that makes sense. Um, And I think this is just, I just think having a place where you can go and be uninterrupted and be in touch with your own feelings and your own thoughts. um, It's just disappearing from the culture right now. One of the places I think people used to get it is on airplanes. I think actually some of the people Mm. I know who flew a lot like I, you know, my friend Rob Walker the other day was saying, I miss airplane mode. I miss being in airplane mode. And I wrote about a, a, um, an artist uh, that I love named Nina Kachadorian, who actually used long flights to make artwork. That was the time where she made many of her pieces for her uh, series called Seat Assignment. Wow. I love that title too, because seat assignment is what my um my old creative writing professor used to say. He said, apply butt to chair. That is the assignment. <laughs> Sit in your chair long enough to make something. Um, but the bliss station for me is I'm interested in how Campbell says you need a time or a place. Cause he says he, he's talking about time and space so in some ways the bus can be a bliss station if you go there every day at the same like your commute could be a bliss station you know play and i'm always interested in if you're say a single mom who lives in a tiny apartment i'm always interested in whether a bliss station could be more of a time rather than a space so the bliss station Mm. might be if you can get up at 6 a.m. before your kids are up and you sit yeah. at the kitchen table, the kitchen table turns into a bliss station. So I'm always interested in that, like uh, what are the conditions in which we can create a bliss station? You know, I, when I was traveling more, it was like, well, earplugs in airplane mode. Right. Do- <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I don't think the culture respects this much anymore. I don't, I don't think the dominant culture r- right now that we have any respect for the idea of a, of a bliss station because, oh, absolutely. you know, we want people to be connected 24 um, seven. And part of that is just the American. We want to sell you things. You know, yeah. nobody can sell yeah. you anything when you're at your bliss station because you're not taking anything in. Yeah. So true. So in your bliss station there, Austin, do you, we, I just thought to, you know, when I was talking to David Lynch and I did some work with his foundation and that's to help healthcare workers and essential workers, um, have some meditation, teach them about meditation so that they can, you know, some de-stress a little bit there. But do you practice, I'm just curious, do you practice any kind of meditation or is your bliss station your meditation or? I did for a while. I, I practiced, uh, when my when my first kid was really little and then I sort of realized that art making has the kind of same effects that I get from meditation. So when I write my journal longhand, I'm almost in a kind of trance like state. I have thought about going back to meditation, um, but I'm just such a fidgety, which is even more reason for me to go back to it. But there's something uh, for me about, 
there, there's uh, collage does that too. I get in these weird trance states when I'm making my collages where I'm just not even, I'm not doing any kind of rational thinking whatsoever. It's just this image is, is appearing in front of me with out of these scraps. Um, and, but I do get in this kind of disconnected kind of trance like state. Um, and that's that's a big part of what happens in the yeah. bull station. But I, I would also like to say that I'm interrupted constantly. I mean, I, I, I've I've really changed my idea about art and interruption. Um, part of that's come from uh, reading Wendell Berry, um, mm. the poet and farmer and essayist. Um, he talks about art and interruption. I used to think that like art only came out of complete. You know, never being interrupted. Like everything is about the art, but Wendell Berry talks about how interruption provides meaning for the work. That actually, when you're being interrupted, the interruption is part of life, and that just adds like sort of more meaning to the work. And I think about that with my kids a lot. Like when they interrupt me, at first you have that oh, like I was, you know, but then you're like. I'm going to, okay, I'm going to turn and I'm going to give you attention and I'm going to go right back to it, you know, even though it's hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I'm interested in that as a parent because I don't think there's any other, the world will always interrupt you. Do you take the interruption as a curse or do you think of it as something that just provides meaning to, to, to when you're actually doing the work? I don't know. It, it might be a little bit too wishful thinking, but I, I do think there's <laughs> something to it. There's something. Oh, to, yeah. Like, yeah to the interruptions in the same way when you break your routine to do something fun it's just it's like playing hooky right like playing hooky is not very fun if you never go to school right i mean if you if you never go to school playing hooky doesn't have the thrill whereas if you're in in school all the time like playing hooky every once in a while feels really good oh yeah that's and that's sort of like the interruption thing i don't know and there's something there to it i don't know (laughs) so when you're talking about leaving the world behind if you will when you're in that that area you also talk about fomo and (laughs) jomo am i right Right. i want to make sure i'm saying that there's fomo F-O-M-O, that's the fear of missing out. And then there's JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. That is, that is no, having the maturity to know I'm going to miss so many things in life. I'm going to miss TV shows that people love. I'm going to miss books. I'm going to miss parties. I'm going to miss great restaurants that just opened. I'm going to miss these things, and that's okay because I have this other thing that I'm doing. So switching yes. from a FOMO mindset to a JOMO uh, mindset has been really important. That's what you have to do. That's another parenting thing, right, to say. Yes. I'm going to miss out on so much, but then there's so much happening here too, right? Um, and Because uh, I, I do think the one thing I will say about a, a life dedicated to creative work is it does require you to choose you know you have to choose things we're always choosing things whether we know it or not i mean you know to to get enough time for example to write your novel you know you're not going to be able to watch netflix the way other people right. do you know like you you just have to make choices and um and that's a big part of the work choosing what to leave out of your life you know choosing what holes you're going to have and what spaces that makes the space for the other stuff right oh yeah absolutely absolutely i'm gonna say one more joseph campbell quote because i love this one okay if you follow your bliss you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you and the life that you ought to be living is the one you are living wherever you are if you are following your bliss you're enjoying that refreshment that life within you all the time i can dig it would you say you're following your bliss i hope so I hope so. Of course, I love the New Yorker cartoon where the guy's holding a sign that says, followed my bliss. And he's on the side of the street. <laughs> he's got a cardboard sign. Followed uh-huh. my bliss. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I love thinking I, the one thing, the best thing that I, I so far in my, in my career, the thing that's felt the best had like, 
I'm meant to do this. Like I am meant to do this. Like when I make one of my books, I have a kind of feeling of like, I'm meant to do this. I I can't do, not only can I do this, this is what I'm supposed to do. And when you find that, I don't think every person finds that, but when you find that you really need to honor it, you know, and pay attention to it. Um, And that, I think that's bliss, you know, feeling like you're firing on all cylinders. That's the other thing I love about making art is that idea that the, the head, the heart and the hands are aligned. That it's all, that you're a whole person again, because I think so much of the work we do is fragmented. We don't feel like we're in control of the whole thing. We feel like a cog, you know, that kind of thing. That is the one thing I love about making art is that you feel like you're, you're in control. You're doing it. You know, you're, 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 everything's firing. You're not, there's not a piece of yourself that you're not using. So you're about to make my wall because I was writing this earlier. It's a quote from a guy named Austin Cleon. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we interviewed your friends. Uh, Certainty in art and life is not only completely overrated, it's actually a roadblock to discovery. So, Austin, I it's just so great to have you. I hope that you uh, keep or keep on discovering. I hope that you uh, continue to follow your bliss. And I just, I just want you to know, it's such a great day. So great to have you Thank here. You. Thank this you. This is really so, so much. Oh yeah. A so, gift to my day. Yeah. Any, anything coming up? Um, I'm working on a book about what my kids taught oh, me about I, art. So here we go. You know, uh, <laughs> so, you know, trying and, um, you know, I, I feel like these three, these last three books really talk to each other. So it's that thing of like, well, what can we do that's new? You know, like what can yeah. we do that, that, that brings the reader? Cause you said earlier, you know, it's a thing to have readers is a beautiful, wonderful yeah. thing. Um, and I'm like, you know, I, I, I think I want to do something that speaks to them and helps them, but also takes them on a ride that I want to give them. Oh yeah. I can't wait for that. You know, I'm right down the road from you. I might just come by and see it. Excited. So I'm inviting I'm excited. myself. You know? We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So where can people follow you? Um, so the easiest thing is just go to austincleon.com and I'm Austin Cleon on Instagram and Twitter and all those places. But my favorite thing, my absolute favorite thing that I do online is I do a weekly newsletter and it's a list of 10 things that I think are worth sharing. And it's just art, music, books, uh, stuff I've made and, uh, it goes out every week. It's free and I just love it. It's just my favorite thing that I do. I've been doing it for way so long now, and and it's my way of like kind of, it's the best way to keep in touch with me. Oh, cool! I'm gonna have to get on that then. All right, okay. Well, hey man, keep planting that garden. Thank you. I will. <laughs> All I right. Will. Thank you so much, Austin.